Okay, that's true, by the way. So uh, let's pray. Father, I can't help to think but that you're uh, pleased because what you have built and are building is taking place and we as a small part are gathered here to be further built up into the image of your son and to be made ready uh, to meet him, to join him as he comes in victory. And so, Lord, I pray that that hope would transcend all the things that we're dealing with individually. It would transcend anything that we encounter here in this world. That it would be our always rejoicing hope, even in the midst of sorrow. So as your words open, I pray and ask that you would speak that you would speak in spirit and truth and that we would be able to hear in spirit and truth. All this is an act of your grace and your mercy. And we ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see some Latin phrases on the screen and in your bulletin, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which means what it says there, <coughs> the church reformed, Always reforming. Notice also, if you're keyed into this, those words reformed and reforming are little r's. I am not talking today about a school of theology or a specific doctrine. I am talking about what we're going to come to see as sanctification. But I'm going to use this phrase, these phrases as a way to get us started in thinking about sanctification. Because we need to think about it first as a church and also as individuals. And when we use the word reform, we need to understand what that means. To reform means to improve by the removal of faults or abuses. To be reformed, with a little r, is uh, improved in conduct and character. These phrases were first seen in a devotional writing by a Dutch minister named Jodicus van Lodenstein in 1674. And they've been used throughout church history in parts, in, in a single word, or in the phrases before and after him. But he put these two together. Now, who this guy was, was just a, a Dutch minister in the Netherlands, and he inherited a church that was already reformed in the external sense that these guys looked for things to be reformed in the external sense. In three areas, doctrine, worship, and government, which would be church order or ecclesiology. So they saw that the Bible had some very specific things to say about what you believe, how you worship, and how you organize yourself as the body of Christ. 
And they believed that once those things were done, you could be considered semper reformata, which would mean the church reformed, or it's, it's finished in that sense, in the external sense. You are in line with the word. But mostly what these guys would talk about was the, uh, the, the part of that phrase, semper reformanda, always reforming. And that is based on um, what they saw in Scripture, what we should see in Scripture, or simply what we can see in the mirror of the need to constantly remove the faults in, in, in our spirits to improve our conduct or character. And in the biblical sense, that means to be more conformed to the image of Christ, which is the work of God now, until we're glorified later. A lot of the early church fathers would, would speak on this from Matthew 15, 8, where Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They saw in the depths of their soul and their being constant need to get closer to Jesus. And what the scriptures constantly testify is that we do have that constant need to get closer to Jesus. If you read their writings, that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with the heart. They're dealing with the spirit. They're dealing with the thoughts, with the mind. They are looking to be conformed or reformed in their thought, in their heart, to be more like Christ. I saw a passing off of a resource this morning the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of uh, Puritan prayers. And if you read those, as several of you have, you will understand how these people prayed and what they prayed for. And they were mostly, I would argue, praying about the condition of their hearts. They were aware of their thoughts that were not... Um, in line with Christ. They were aware of where those thoughts came from, which would be a heart that is not fully conformed to the image of Christ. And they saw as their greatest need those things to be reformed. Always reforming. So you need to know and you need to join me in this, that we have to operate from a place that understands that we have not yet been glorified. And if we have not yet been glorified, if we have not uh, taken on full holiness in the presence of his glory, and if he is in the midst of us uh, completing a work that's not yet finished, then we have to always be uh, ready and able to say that we are not there yet that we have lots of work to do. That one of the main reasons that you and I gather even on Sunday mornings and, and in Sunday schools and in midweek studies is that we help and encourage and inform one another how to be conformed into the image of Christ. And all this, I've shared with you on a Sunday night before, is, is in an effort to present to him a bride that is holy, spotless, and blameless. It's a gift. The church is a gift 
that God the Father is giving to his Son. And if there's a transaction of gifts between those two, then that's going to be a really good gift. And so we also are informed from Scripture in Ephesians 4 that he's given gifts to the church to bring that about, to bring that further reformation of heart so that she, the bride of Christ, is ready for him. <coughs> in essence, there's a prophecy in Isaiah that speaks about becoming a people like this. In Isaiah 66, 2, all these things my hand has made so that all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Why, have I, why I've included Isaiah 66, 2 to start is this. If we are a people who in and of ourselves and joined together are always reforming or being made holy or removing our faults and abuses so that we become better in conduct and character, then that requires us to take a position of humility and of fear at his word because we're going to be corrected by it. We're going to read things in it that describe something other than ourselves. We're going to read things in his word that actually may even describe who we are in the present that is not good. But mostly, we're going to see in his word, him, Jesus, whom we're being conformed to, and we don't look like him at times. And we're supposed to. So in biblical terms, we are reforming in order to move along in our sanctification. Being made holy is what sanctification is. Or you could even simplify it even further. Being made like Christ. There was a 7th century German Lutheran named Frederick Baldwin of Wittenberg. He was a professor at Martin Luther's University in Wittenberg and a church overseer. He wrote a commentary in 1610 uh, over the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And in his comments on Malachi chapter 1, he wrote this, We are admonished by this inscription. The work of reformation in the church is always needed because the corruption of morals and doctrine there always, incur, always occurs. Do you know why? Do you know why the corruption of morals and doctrine always occurs? Because people are involved. And I don't care if, if you're believers or not. We are constantly going to fight the flesh that is, is uh, symptomatic of the fall, that, uh, that carries with it these diseases of sin and death. And so there will always be a pull uh, to the moral decay and to doctrinal error. And so we have to be aware that that's a, a symptom of the world that we live in, and we must constantly fight against it. He also says there's a continual digression of morals and doctrine, and he points uh, to certain places in the Bible where reform was needed and where reform take place, took place. In the Old Testament, before Babylonian captivity, he points to the reforms of Joash, Asa, Hosea, Hezekiah, and of course you know the reforms of Josiah. Post that captivity, when they returned to Jerusalem, Israel, Joshua and Zerubbabel, also the reformation of Malachi in his prophecy, and certainly 
the great reformer Jesus Christ who sought to reform the church in Jerusalem where most of his discourses on what was wrong with the people's worship took place. This minister also offered a fascinating observation that shows us that the church will always be in need of reform due to continued corruption of morals and doctrine. Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 thesis that was nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, that kind of sparked the whole thing of the Reformation where we took the, the, the Bible, the Word of God, and brought it back to the lay people when it was held captive by the Catholic Church. Martin Luther said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Applying the doctrine more broadly, I think uh, that this Baldwin gives us the answer. The church always needs reforming because the church is always deforming. In other words, due to the sin and corruption of its members, the entire life of the church is to be one of repentance. That comes from Tim LaCroix. Repentance doesn't happen once when you decide all of a sudden you're a sinner you need salvation, He forgives you, and then no more. But no, we are left here to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and are being made holy in this human existence, which is what most people would call progressive sanctification. <clears throat> in other words, the Bible speaks about at one time being sanctified, being made holy in Christ, that comes at the same time that you are justified in Christ. These things are sure because he completed the work that the Lord gave him to do to accomplish that for his people. But right now the experience is such as that we are moving towards that point progressively. This is why in John 17, 17, Jesus asked the Father to sanctify them <coughs> in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify in John 17, 17 is uh, those who know Greek and the verb forms of Greek. This would be an aorist active imperative verb form, which means nothing to us. So let me tell you, it's, it's, it's a word that signifies a present action is to be taken because of a past action. And what's the past action? Well, that Jesus has given uh, his people the word of God and that he has made manifest the Father to them. In light of that, make them holy, he asks. By what? That word that I gave them. That's why that sits out here in front of the church on that sign because we want to alert people what's happening in here or what we're asking the Father to do in here. We're asking Him to constantly make us aware of where we need to reform our hearts, where we need to get closer to Him than we are. Romans 6 
in the whole chapter kind of alerts us to this. Alerts us to the possibility that this can actually take place because in Jesus we become dead to sin and alive to God. So he begins the chapter in Romans 6 by talking to us about how, or he asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to no longer move further into holiness just because grace exists to cover that sin? And what's emphatic in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died still live in it? He goes on to speak about how we've been baptized into Christ and gives a discourse there of what that means to be baptized into Christ. No longer enslaved to sin, set free from sin. It has no dominion over us, verse 9. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. In other words, guys, if you have been born into Christ, your master is Jesus, who is holy and perfect, and following him will lead you further into holiness. <clears throat> Verse eight, uh, 16, we don't present ourselves to anyone as slaves, but to Christ, not to sin. Um, verse 18, we're slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, we've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What's all this for? For What's all this about? What are all these efforts for? What are all these Bible studies for? What are all these gatherings and Sunday mornings for? They are to make us more like Christ until we reach the end, which is eternal life in his glory. That's what this is for. That's why you are a part of a church. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, the gathering of believers here, this is what's taking place. If it's not taking place, then you don't have a church. If this is taking place, then the Lord is in our midst and we are being made ready for him, by him, through him, to him. We are being reformed. And then, of course, we know that this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4 expressly says this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In that context, what are we talking about? The, that you abstain from sexual morality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Okay, so we like to know exactly what the will of God is for our life. And Paul informs the Thessalonians, the will of God is your sanctification. And here's what it looks like with what you're dealing with. So, without a shadow of a doubt, we can say to each person in this room that God's will for your life is that you be made holy, period. And by the way, 
to give you hope and to not thrust burdens on you, he's going to do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's doing it. He is in our midst to what uh, Philippians 4 says, <clears throat> to complete the work that he began. So it's a reminder to constantly look back to him. To look to him to see what holiness actually looks like, but to look to him from what we saw from Romans 6 as the power and the master over us to lead us there. And, and just real quick, and there's a lot to say about this, but just a, a quick word of application in that way. How do you look at him? You look at him by reading this. That's why Bible reading, memorization, a plan in place, a study in place is of supreme importance if you are a believer. Because you already heard that God's will is your, your sanctification. And you're going to only do that by looking at him. And how are you going to look at him? You're going to read him, hear him, see him through faith. And we'll look at that in a minute. <clears throat> but understand, we are being sanctified. It's a work that's happening. For Hebrews 10, 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See the structure of that sentence? He perfected for all time those who are in the process of being made holy, sanctified. It's completed, but you're working on it right now. See what I'm saying? It's a guarantee. It's, it's a, a Romans 8.30 thing where, where glorified is in the past tense because he accomplished it. He, he guaranteed it. He secured it. But the experience now is that you're going you're gonna to move towards that point until it comes to fruition. Now, what is the standard or definition of this holiness or perfection? And it could be answered very simply from Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. God saved you in order to conform you into the image of his Son. You're like, wait a minute, weren't we already created in his image according to uh, Genesis 2? Or Genesis 1? Um, yes. And then sin came in and muddied that image to where you became something completely different than who he is. So now enter Jesus, which Romans tells us he's like the second Adam for mankind. And you must be born again into that likeness by the Spirit. So all your... Uh, physical attributes and stuff are somewhat akin to what God is in logic and in order and in, in all, this, all this that he declares good. Your ability to love and reason and experience relationship is all in his image. 
But the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John 3 is that that isn't everything. You have to exist, but you must exist in the Spirit, by the Spirit, which is the second birth, the new birth. And it's a birth after Him, into Him. And this makes Jesus the, the forebearer of the image that is acceptable before God. We, as human beings, following Adam's likeness and Eve's likeness, are not acceptable before God. But in the likeness of Jesus, His only begotten Son, we are. So, you must be born into that image. So the question then becomes, who is he? Who is Jesus? Who is the, the image of the Son? What are, we, what are we looking at? What are we moving into? What are, what are we following? Oswald Chambers says, If I exalt sanctification, I preach people into despair. But if I lift up Jesus Christ, people learn the way to be made holy. Like I said, we can talk about being made holy and sanctified, and you can be really burdened down. And then there is no good news. That's, that's Mormon doctrine. The good news is, uh, look at Jesus, and you'll be made holy. That's the whole thing here, guys. That's... That's why I believe the Lord has led me here specifically to you to just do that. Just say, hey, look there. That's why in the coming weeks you'll have an articulation of a, of a vision from me, from the Bible mainly, uh, and, and a very easy way to remember that vision. And the very easy way to remember that vision that I'll articulate to you is that we are about seeing you see him. Because if you see him, then the holiness comes. Right? The, the hope comes. Life comes. And that's all we're about. So let's, let's look at him for a minute here. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 I'm going to read this whole thing to you, but mark that in your Bibles and meditate on it later. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you see that? In Jesus, in Jesus alone, the fullness of God is there. Which would mean what? That he is God. And 
that chapter in Colossians carries on after verse 23, where Paul tells them, because of that, because of who he is, this is why I am who I am. A minister who's going to labor and toil to get you to him, holy and blameless, mature in Christ. You're his gift. You're the result of his work. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the whole world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So that's who he is. And he operates as such when he comes to earth to reconcile men to God. In his body, he's doing that. So how may we see him? How may we see this Christ, this Holy One that we're supposed to be looking at? You know, there have been millions of people who have read the Bible throughout the ages and have never seen him. Why? He must be revealed. We, we must be able to see uh, what Paul saw and the people that, that, or that what Saul did see and the people that were with Saul did not see. He was revealed to Saul. He wasn't revealed to them. Luke 10, 22, all things have been handed over to me by my father, Jesus says, and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is revealing the Father and who he is, and now we're going to see how the Father reveals Jesus and who he is. Jesus has this discussion with his disciples at one point, and he says, just curious, guys, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets or the prophet that is to come. Uh, and so then he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And who's the first to speak always? The spokesperson for the disciples. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Just when Peter could be really proud that he got the answer right. In most of the Gospels, it records directly after that how, how Peter gets things wrong. So, the Father revealed who Jesus was to Peter. That's why he knows. John 14, 8 through 9, Philip said to him, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, 
Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We already read earlier that the manifestation that Jesus is giving us here in the world is that of God. The fullness of God is in him. He is the exact imprint of his nature, the, the visibility of his invisibility. You see Jesus, he says to Philip, you see God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus is praying to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children or to the, those of uh, simple faith. This is the pleasure of God, to reveal them, what we read back in Isaiah 66, to those that are humble and contrite who tremble at the word of God. You remember as Jesus begins to speak in parables at the end of his ministry, he is, re, he is concealing the kingdom of God from the proud and the wise, those who are not humble, those who don't tremble at his word, and he is revealing the kingdom to the little children, to the simple, to the outcast, to, the, to those that are humble, tremble at his word. In other words, what he speaks is just as important as what they see. Those are the people who have these things revealed to them. And in John 6.45, it is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So God calls and God draws. And he does that by revealing who Jesus is. So we must. We must have him, if we're going to see Jesus, we must have him reveal him to us. Therefore, if the Lord reveals who we're supposed to be looking at, if he reveals what holiness looks like by revealing Jesus, then certain things will follow. I love 1 Peter 1, 8-9. Though you have not seen him physically, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you love Jesus, if you know that intrinsically, then you can rest assured that he has been revealed to you through the scriptures, by the Spirit, in a way that he's not revealed to everybody. And therefore, you can have hope that you'll obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Paul is the perfect example of this. Paul's not seeing Jesus every day. Paul's not walking in the physical presence of Jesus. 
Paul is living on the hope of what is to come because Jesus was at one time revealed to him. And as Paul continued to learn and grow, he was further revealed to him. And thankfully that happened because that means that as he recorded all that, Jesus is further revealed to us. And if Jesus is further revealed to us, we grow in our knowledge and likeness of him, and that would mean we are going to obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And I'll, and I'll read this. We'll look at this in John 15. Because if you love him, there's some implications. We can't just gather here and say, we love Jesus, and just state it. Okay? James says that you've got to have a little bit more flesh on your faith than that. Okay? So if you love him, Jesus is going to clarify what that would actually look like. John 15, 8 through 17, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, or learners. Okay? Disciple means learner of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so I have, have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. If you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So this brings us even back to last week. If he's been revealed to you, there, there is no ex exception to this rule. If Jesus has been revealed to you, you will love him, though you don't see him. That's how glorious he is. And if that happens, number one, you'll love God, and number two, you'll love one another. Because you'll recognize your brothers and sisters as objects of his divine love and passion. And if you love him, you love what he loves. So the fulfilling of the law summarized in the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, that's, that's where it all goes back to. That's how you know you're being sanctified. That's what you are to grow in every time. And so therefore we must take a position of understanding that sanctification <coughs> or reform in the church is happening always until glorification. We don't ever 100% have it right. And you don't let that thought paralyze you. Because you, you have to also 
couch your understanding in the fact that you are forgiven. Your glorification is sure. God is patient and working with you until that point. And so even though you fail, we fail, we don't get it right, we, we, we do things for a long time that we shouldn't have been doing, and then we learn he's right there doing that work. He knows where you are. He knows where you're going to be next year. He knows what you have wrong right now, and he knows how he's going to help you get it right. That never means you're outside of Christ. But progress, progress in sanctification reveals or glorifies God in his work in the midst of sinners, in the midst of his church. So, although there may reach a point where we don't look different in function or in externals, I I would say year by year, you must look different. Amen? You must. You, You don't start as one of these little ones and reach a certain age of like 30 and then you got it. I would argue that even from age 80 to 88 to 89, you should be different. You should look more like Christ in some way. Now, part of the watering down of the sanctification process and the ability for us to constantly be in that without losing heart comes from kind of the culture that we have been raised in, everybody. We have this event and breakthrough obsessed and based culture. Immediate gratification. And it's crept into the church decades ago to where we're looking for a moment in time when we can get the full fruit of whatever we were working towards. That is not the Christian life or the church. Sanctification is a lifelong process And we are called to rejoice in the progress and not the perfection. Your perfection's guaranteed. You know what Paul tells Timothy as a young minister? He tells him to let them see his progress in the faith. Which should serve their encouragement that it's okay and necessary to grow. Nobody should ever assume that they have arrived. Everybody should assume that they still have reform that has to take place. We have to operate from that position. You know, back again to thinking about uh, professional athletes or those in our culture that we deem excellent in what they do. What, what, what will separate the superstar from just the everyday professional is a consistent desire, consistent desire over years to be better. I don't care if they've won seven Super Bowls and are 45 years old. When they still have the desire to get better, they get better. And they become something that we rarely see. Now, bring that back to the church. If all of us 
are making those efforts in our life by the power of God that works in us, by looking to Him consistently, what would it look like? You have to be stirred by that curiosity. What kind of impact? What, what would God be pleased to do in our midst? How would He use that? <clears throat> A group of people that is sold out to knowing Jesus. And please think of it that way. Please think of your sanctification that way. If I want to know Jesus better. Because I guarantee you, if that's your effort, if that's your goal, if that's your desire, you will become more of a sanctified person. You, you don't have to make New Year's resolutions and say, okay, this year I'm going to be this much of a better Christian, I'm going to do these things. All, I'm, all we're trying to get you to do, all I'm trying to get myself to do, is to look at Him. A... Uh, Bible scholar named F.F. Bruce says it this way, Sanctification is glory begun. Glory is sanctification completed. So we always should know where we're going when we begin something. You are saved in the hope that you'll receive the outcome of that salvation. Jesus, the glory of of heaven, eternal life in his presence. But that's not yet. That comes at the end of your sanctification. So enjoy the process. It's leading to guaranteed fruit. In fact, it's leading to guaranteed eternal life. And you may get frustrated with yourself <coughs> or frustrated with other people around you in their sanctification or slowness thereof. But I want you to take heart because God is bearing with us in great patience to complete the work that he began. So enjoy the process of looking at Jesus. Be free from the burdens of trying to be perfect. He already accomplished that for you. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So be tied to him and be amazed at who he is at all times and you will get there. I'm here for that in your life. And I'm looking to you as brothers and sisters to be here in my life for that. So my prayer is that by the grace of God, you would see Jesus and be transformed. So respond to him now, and we'll stand and sing together.